Stewart. We need to jump in because there's some amazing material in Narnia today. What I want to do before we even get to the magician's nephew is read you something from uh, C.S. Lewis's autobiography. Uh, you will notice, you've already noticed, in the magician's nephew, uh, 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 Diggory's mother. Diggory's mother keeps popping up, and in these closing chapters, Diggory's sick mother back in Edwardian England uh, becomes a, a more prominent player in these closing chapters. Uh, all of us that have been reading these for years, we, we, we cannot help but remember that one of the most um, formative things in C.S. Lewis's life was the death of his mother uh, when he was about 10 years old. So it happened in 1908, before his 10th birthday, uh, that his mother died. I want to read you just a little bit from his autobiography. Um, it's interesting, his autobiography, as you probably know, is entitled Surprised by Joy. Now, he's talking about, in this autobiography, joy as a theological concept. Uh, now, the interesting thing to most of us is he wrote this autobiography, Surprised by Joy, before he, late in life, met his wife, Joy Davidman. And by the way, you know what Joy's um, first name was? It's in the senior magician's name. Her first name was Helen. Remember why Nellie, did you notice Nellie got renamed Helen by Aslan? Anyway, um, The Surprise by Joy is C.S. Lewis's biography, autobiography. Uh, he wrote it, and it just takes you up to his conversion. Uh, it just takes you up to his conversion around 1930, 1932. Um, and he wrote it before he met, he wrote it in the 50s. He wrote it before he met Joy Davidman. So we've always thought it was rather ironic that he, he entitled it Surprised by Joy. Uh, let me read you um, what most of us find to be a very memorable account, just a little bit, a piece or two, of C.S. Lewis's memorable account about the death of his mother. Now, again, 1908, Edwardian England. Uh, the death of his mother left him, you can read all about it in his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, left him and his brother Warney with a rather distant, bizarre father who almost as soon as his mother died, his distant, bizarre father, trying to be good to Jack, shipped him off to boarding school. And you can probably imagine what that did to uh, Jack as a almost 10-year-old. Anyway, this is how he describes it uh, in Surprised by Joy. I cannot be absolutely sure whether the things I've just been speaking of happened before or after the great loss which befell our family into which I must now turn. There came a night when I was ill and crying both with headache and toothache and distressed because my mother did not come to me. That was because she was ill, too. And then, um, then it, it tells the story. It tells the, the story of what happens. She was ill, too. And what was odd was that there were several doctors in her room and voices and comings and goings all over the house and doors shutting and opening. Now, again, he's almost 10 years old. It seemed to last for hours. And then my father, in tears, came into my room 
and began to try to convey to my terrified mind things they had never conceived before. It was, in fact, cancer, and it followed the usual course. An operation, they operate in the patient's house in those days, he says, an apparent convalescence, a return of the disease, increasing pain, and death. And then he says, my father never fully recovered from the loss, and he, he was almost useless in helping uh, Warney and Jack recover from the loss. And then this section ends with some words that are frequently quoted from C.S. Lewis uh, as, he, as he summarizes what it felt like to him when his mother died. He, he ends this chapter in Surprised by Joy by saying this, With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. Uh, so the death of his mother, the, the illness and the death of his mother had an amazing impact on his life, probably had a lot to do with the fact that he took his friend's mother and cared for her after his friend's death. That was Mrs. Moore. He cared for her for 30 years. Uh, she was um, about 20 years older than he was. Uh, she, he cared for her till she died. And he never married until after she died. That's when late in life he, he encountered Helen Joy Davidman. So um, that is what's behind a lot of Diggory and Diggory's pain concerning his mother um, that you're reading about here in The Magician's Nephew. So with that, turn to chapter 10. A lot of humor in this, this part of the book. Um, Aslan has sung... Narnia into existence. You saw that uh, in the previous two chapters. Here in chapter 10, notice the title, The First Joke and Other Matters. Uh, you're going to see actually three jokes here in this chapter. I hope you have some memory of what these jokes are. Uh, but you, you see here that Narnia is born. Uh, then comes the creation of um, talking animals and that will include Strawberry, the horse. Remember, you've got, you've got the cabbie here, because when they, when they all made their journey to Narnia, um, Diggory and Polly took both the witch and Andrew and the cabbie from London, um, and the cabbie's horse, Strawberry. Uh, you see that Strawberry begins speaking. He had become one of those talking animals in Narnia. And, you, and then you'll notice a little later in a subsequent chapter that he, um, he transforms. Anyway, so um, you, you've got these animals being created. You've got these animals uh, learning how to talk. Uh, you, you, you've, got, um, you've got Aslan saying to them that, you know, they, they don't have to, to be grave all the time. They don't always have to be grave. They can laugh. They can have joy. And at that point, the jack doll. I had to go figure out what a jack doll was. I don't think we have jack dolls on this continent. At least Wikipedia told me they weren't here. 
uh, for what Wikipedia is worth. They are European and, and South American. They're, they're a form of a crow. So um, you got a jackdaw who begins talking, and, and the, the, the jackdaw sort of learns that uh, he, he, is, he is the first joke. You've not made the first joke. You have only been the first joke, is what Aslan says to the jackdaw. Um, then what I hope that, um, well, look on page 130. Because, again, this is the Narnia version of the book of Genesis. Creation occurs, but real, really early in creation, you notice, just like in the book of Genesis, evil is present. So look at page 130. Um, so you, you notice Aslan is speaking. He says at the end of the paragraph that begins there on page 130, For though the world is not five hours old, and evil has already entered it. And then here comes some of the humor. The creatures he had named came forward, and he turned away and he turned away eastward after them. The others all began talking, saying things. What what did he say? Had entered the world. A nevil? What's a nevil? No, he didn't say a nevil, he said a weevil. Well, what's that? Um, so they're a little confused about what Aslan is saying, because they don't really know evil at this point. But evil is in Narnia at this point. Uh, you notice um, on page 131, that's when Diggory says, uh, it, it's about mother. When he wants an opportunity to speak to Aslan, he wants to speak to Aslan about, about his mother. And that's going to continue. Um, then there's, there's a, a, a second joke. Um, when they think that these humans, do you notice the rabbit thought that the humans were lettuce? <laughs> now, you know, it's kind of weird they would think we were lettuce, but if you don't know what a human is and you just barely know what lettuce is, it, it may make sense. They think the humans, um, the rabbits, they think the humans, they're, they're lettuce. So that's the second joke. Um, you'll notice at the bottom of page 132, uh, in the last complete paragraph, Strawberry is speaking. Well, said Strawberry very slowly, I don't exactly know. I think most of us don't know much about anything yet. But I've sort of the idea, I've, I've seen a thing like this before, talking about these humans. And then notice what he says. I have a feeling I've lived somewhere else or was something else before Aslan woke us up a few minutes ago. It's all very muddled. It's like a dream. Uh, I think when we get to the next world, because there, there's more than one world, Narnia is teaching it. When we get to the next world, this world may very much seem like a dream to us. We'll have hints of it. We'll remember parts of it. But it, it will seem like we have been awakened from a dream because the world to come is the real world. This world is the Shadowlands. That's both Plato, Christianity, and C.S. Lewis. The world to come is the, is, is the real world. So anyway, ain't, uh, these, these animals, they, they continue to talk. And, you know, evil is, is now, he says, evil is in the world. But what I want you to see, because I keep wanting you to look at Andrew and um, Jadis, the wicked witch, evil witch. I want you to keep paying attention to them. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, you're not supposed to be like them. 
Uh, you're supposed to be more like Diggory and Polly and uh, Frank and Helen. Look at the bottom of page 135. You know, you got all this wondrous thing going on in Narnia. The animals are talking. It's just amazing. It's, it's magical to read. You see the glory of creation. Uh, you see um, the spirituality of creation that some people can see and other people can other people cannot see. The bottom of page 35, 135. Uh, Jack Lewis is going to get you back to Andrew. Notice how Andrew is responding. We must now go back a bit and explain what the whole scene had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It had not made at all the same impression on him as on the cabbie and the children. For what you see and hear depends on... Hear this. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. I like to say we Christians see things other people don't see. We see further and beyond what other people see. Uh, where you know, Our position in life and the kind of person we are helps us see things other people don't see. Andrew cannot see what these others are seeing. Keep going. Ever since the animals had first appeared, Uncle Andrew had been shrinking further and further back into the thicket. He watched them very hard, of course, but he wasn't really interested in seeing what they were doing. Only in seeing whether they were going to make a rush at him. It's all about Andrew for Andrew. Like the witch, he was dreadfully practical. You know, being dreadfully practical is not a virtue. Um, there's some parts of the Christian faith that aren't practical but real. Like the witch, who was dreadfully practical, he simply didn't notice that Aslan was choosing one pair out of every kind of beast. All he saw or thought he saw was a lot of dangerous wild animals walking vaguely about. And he kept on wondering why the other animals didn't run away from the big lion. When the, <clears throat> when the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point. For a rather interesting reason, when the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things that he did not want to think and feel. Um, we'll look at a Bible text when we finish. But as human beings, we're spiritually blind. That's who we are by nature. Again, that's why I baptize even your baby. Your baby is spiritually blind. As human beings, we're spiritually blind. We need the work of God in Christ. We cannot see correctly. We are blind until he helps us see. I guess you've sung Amazing Grace before. Uh, we were blind, but he helps us see. Um, spiritual truth has to be spiritually revealed. You can't get at spiritual truth naturally. Andrew can't see or hear what's going on, and he just he has this rather strange feeling because nothing about this makes him feel good. This whole world is very foreign to him. It's kind of like you know, sometimes every now, not not here at Wesley, but every now and again I see people show up in church. I can tell they're out of their comfort zone. Uh, they're in a strange new world when they're at church. Anyway, so this, this what, what Andrew felt, and he felt very insignificantly compared to what everyone else was feeling, made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Because perhaps he is feeling that there are things greater than himself. 
There are things beyond himself. There is a creator, and it is not Andrew. So all of that was not making him feel well. Anyway, continue. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, can we say spiritual ignorance when we're thinking about Andrew and Andrew-type people? He tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring at any line might, as any line might in, in, the, in the zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. That can't really be God speaking to me. Um, yeah. Um, I saw somebody one time during an altar call. She was holding on to the pew in front of her. I thought she was going to break our pew. She was holding on so tight. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Whoever heard of, of a lion singing? And the, whoever heard of a virgin birth? Whoever heard of someone rising from the dead? Whoever heard that somebody could die in April of 33 AD and save all of us from our sins? Yeah, you got to be open to some new reality. you got to be open to a new world here. Andrew wasn't. Whoever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. I love this next line. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Oh, I hate to say it, but there's some people popping in my mind right now. Uh, yeah, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider. And by the way, the way we make ourselves stupider is pay attention to what you read, what you study. Pay attention to what you're watching, what you're listening to. Pay attention to who and what is forming you. Because they may be making you, to quote this, stupider. Yeah, you need to be careful. But if that's your goal and you surround yourself with that stuff, you may very well succeed. You may very well succeed. Um yeah, I, I like that phrase. Uncle Andrew did, is what he says. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he, he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He only heard a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard other barkings, growlings, bayings, and howlings. I don't know if you know this, my dog speaks to me. And you may not recognize what he's saying to me. I usually recognize what, what Jaxie is saying to me. Um, and when they laughed, I know when my dog smiles, by the way. And when they laughed, well, you can imagine. That was worse for Uncle Andrew than anything that had happened yet. Such a horrid, bloodthirsty den of hungry and angry brutes. You know they're not brutes. You've been visiting with them. Hungry and angry brutes he had never heard in his life. Then to his utter rage and horror, he saw the other three humans actually walking out into the open to meet the animals. The fools, he said to himself, now those brutes will eat the rings. You know, the rings that take you into different worlds. Now those brutes will eat the rings along with the children, and I'll never be able to get home again. It's all about Andrew. What a selfish little boy that digger is. And the others are just as bad if they want to throw away their own lives as their business. But what about me? 
you know, Jack Lewis puts that in, in italics. But what about me? They don't seem to think of that. No one thinks of me. Well, Andrew thinks enough of me to take care of that one. Um, and then it gets funny. Finally, when a whole crowd of animals came rushing toward Andrew, he turned and ran for his life. And nobody, and now anyone could see that the air of that young world was really doing the old gentleman good. He, he was running fast. In London, he had been far too old to run. Now he ran at a speed which would have made him certain to win the 100 yards race at any prep school in England. His coattails flying out behind him were a fine sight, but of course it was no use. Many of the animals behind him uh, were, were swift ones. It was the first run they'd ever taken in their lives, and they were all longing to use their new muscles. After him, after him, they shouted, perhaps he's the Neville. Tally-ho. Some other word I don't know. Cut him off, round him up, keep it up, uh, hurrah. In a very few minutes, some of them got ahead of him. They lined up in a row and they barred his way. Others hemmed him in from behind. Whenever he looked, he saw terrors, antlers of great elks. The huge face of the elephant, ta the elephant towered over him. Heavy, serious-minded bears and boars grunted beyond him. Cool-looking leopards and panthers with sarcastic faces. I can tell when my dog has a sarcastic face. Well, he can't believe what I'm doing. Stared at him and waved their tails. What struck him most of all was the number of open mouths. The animals had really opened their mouths to pant. He thought they'd opened their mouths to eat him. It's all about him. Uncle Andrew stood trembling and swaying this way and that. He had never liked animals at the best of times, being usually rather afraid of them and, of course, years of doing cruel experiments on animals had made him hate and fear them far more. Remember I told you 19, in the 1920s, C.S. Lewis joined the Anti-Vivisection League in England. That was a league that was created in the 20s to say, let's not experiment on animals. Let's not cause animals pain needlessly just so we can benefit. So C.S. Lewis loves animals. Um, he loved animals. So, uh, look at verse, look at chapter, chapter 11. Look at chapter 11. Digger and his uncle are both in trouble. Um, they, they think Andrew is a tree. Some of them think Andrew is a tree. So then they decide, what do you need to do to a tree? These animals really are good. Andrew doesn't know that. What do you do to help a tree? Well, you plant the tree. So they plant Andrew. And then an elephant goes and gets some water. And waters Andrew. Um, yeah, kind of funny. Um, Andrew's getting everything, everything he he deserves. Look on page 146. Uh, Diggory has been on strawberry at this point. Look at the top of page 146. Diggory slipped off the horse and found himself face to face with Aslan. And Aslan was bigger and more beautiful and more brightly golden and more terrible than he had thought. He dared not look into the great eyes. Please, Mr. Lyon, Aslan, sir, said Diggory, could you, may I please, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make my mother well? He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid it might say no, but he was taken aback when it did neither. This is the boy, said Aslan, looking not at Diggory, but at his counselors, the animals. This is the boy who did it. 
Oh dear, thought Diggory, what have I done now? Son of Adam, said the lion, there is an evil witch abroad in my land of my new land of Narnia. Tell these good beasts how she came here. A dozen different things that he might say flashed through Diggory's mind, but he had the sense to say nothing except the exact truth. Yeah, we want to be like Diggory and Polly and Helen and Frank. I brought her, Aslan, he answered in a low voice. For what purpose? Aslan says, I wanted to get her out of my own world back into her. I thought I was taking her back to her own place. How came she to be in your world, Diggory, son of Adam? By, by magic. The lion said nothing, and Diggory knew that he had not told enough. So, and this feels like the Garden of Eden, it was my uncle Aslan passed the buck. It was my uncle Aslan's fault. He sent us out of our own world by magic rings. At least I had to go because he sent Polly first. And then he met the witch in a place called Charn. And she just held on to us when you met the witch, said Aslan in a low voice, which had the thread of a growl in it. Um, Aslan's not going to let Diggory shirk responsibility. She woke up, said Diggory wretchedly. And then turning very white, I mean, I woke her because I wanted to know what would happen if I struck the bell. Polly didn't want to. It wasn't her fault. I, I fought her. I know I shouldn't have. I think it was a bit enchanted by, I, I think I was a bit enchanted by the writing under the bell. Do you? Asked Aslan, still speaking very slow and deep. No, I see now I wasn't. I was only pretending. There was a long pause, and Diggory was thinking all the time, I've spoiled everything. That's what evil did in the garden. That's what evil has done to this creation. It spoiled everything. And just as evil came into this world, think of the story of Genesis. Evil came into this world, or quote the Apostle Paul, evil, evil came into this world through one man. That's how Paul says it in the book of Romans. Evil came into this world through one man. So by the way, you notice Paul does not blame Eve. Paul blames Adam. And he builds the case that evil came into the world through one man, Adam, and uh, evil will be dealt with through one man, Jesus Christ. Well, the Diggory, Diggory's here the, is the one man that brought the evil into Narnia. Um, and then when the lion spoke again, it was not to Diggory. And here you see Aslan's explanation. You see, friends, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, walked and brought hither by this son of Adam. The beast, even Strawberry, all turned their eyes on Diggory till he felt that he wished the ground would swallow him up. But do not be cast down, said Aslan, still speaking to the beast. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst evil falls upon myself. He's assuming you've read the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. As a Christian, he assumes you know the Bible story, but he's assuming you've read the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. The worst evil falls upon myself. In the meantime, let us take such order that for many hundreds years this shall be a merry land in a merry world, and as Adam's race has done the harm, 
Adam's race shall help to heal it. Again, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. Um, Jesus Christ becoming incarnate. Jesus Christ becoming one of Adam's race. Adam's race shall help to heal it. Draw near you other two. So here comes the cabbing. Um, and you notice, um, as Adam starts talking to the cabbie, he says, just a little bit further down, Son, I have known you longer. I have known you long. Do you know me? A core Christian theological conviction is that before you knew Christ, he knew you. Before you moved toward Christ, he moved toward you. By the way, those of us that are in traditions that baptize infants, again, that's one of the reasons we do it. Before we move toward Christ, we acknowledge Christ has already moved toward us. Theologically, we call that prevenient or preceding grace. Don't ever think you were smart enough to go to Christ, because that makes that a work of righteousness. That makes that a good work. Um, we, we finally come to Christ because we finally let the one who knows us draw us deeper into relationship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here he says to the cabbie, and we love the cabbie, uh, Frank, uh, son, I have known you long. Do you know me? Well, no, sir, said the cabbie. Leastways, not in an ordinary manner of speaking. Yet I feel somehow, if I may f- make so free, as I, we've had that we've met before, it is well, said the lion. You know better than you think you know, and you shall live to know me better yet. How does this land please you? So, uh, yeah, when we allow the Spirit to draw us to Christ, that begins the relationship in fullness. Um, so when notice, I love Frank, the cabbie, do you want to stay in this land? Do you notice the first thing he says? He sort of says, it would be a fair treat, sir, if what? I want my wife. I want my wife. Well, well, you see, sir, I'm, I'm a married man, said the cabbie. If my wife were here, neither of us would ever want to go back to London, I reckon. Yeah, I know some people I need to teach this lesson to also about being married. Yeah, he wants his wife. He wants, and no, she's Nellie to begin with. Aslan renames her Helen, and you know where the name Helen comes from. Uh, so Aslan makes her appear. You know, she's in the middle of her washing day, I think. And the next thing she knows, she's in Narnia. Uh, in this strange new world. To bottom of 150, my children, said Aslan, fixing his eyes on both of them, you are to be the first king and queen of Narnia. And there you see a sketching by Pauline Baines of the first king and queen of Narnia. You know, very simple people, cockney people from East London. They become the first king and queen of of Narnia. You learn that her name is Nellie, but it's not going to stay Nellie. I want you to see the last paragraph of this chapter. Um, Just do the whole last paragraph. Um, He's talking to them, taking care of the animals and doing all the good stuff that that the king and queen of um, Narnia should do. Uh, and he says, and you and your grandchildren shall be blessed, and, and some will be kings of Narnia, and others will be kings of Arkanland. And you know more about that as you read the rest of the Chronicles, which lie yonder over the southern mountains. And you, here he turns to Polly, and you, little daughter, here he turned to Polly, 
or welcome, have you forgiven the boy for the violence he did you in the hall of images, in the desolate place of a cursed charn? Remember, she tried to stop um, Diggory from ringing the bell, which woke the witch. Yes, Aslan, we've made up. That is well said, Aslan. And now for the boy himself. Okay, so now go to chapter 12. This is the chapter where he he's going to ask something of Diggory. He's going to uh, ask Diggory to do something that will help him undo the wrong that he has done by bringing evil, the witch, into Narnia. Um, and uh, you notice um, at the bottom of page um, 153, uh, again, he's thinking of his mother. Uh, yes, um, Lion says, are you ready to do what I want you to do? Yes, says Diggory. He had had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. Yeah, we don't, we shouldn't try to make bargains with God. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother. Keep reading, because this is one of, this is an amazing section. Um, But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had had, and how they were all dying away, and, and a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he he looked at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his very own. Wonder of wonders. Yeah, the condescension of God in Christ to us is wonder of wonders. When he looked up, he noticed the line was bent down toward him. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own. For That for a moment he felt as if the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Uh, That should at least call to mind the shortest verse in the New Testament, which is? Jesus wept. wept There at the tomb of Lazarus, um, Jesus wept. Maybe it should also call to mind Isaiah 53, where it talks about how the sacrifice, the sacrificed one, Uh, was wounded by our transgressions. He bore our griefs. My son, my son, continue on. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. But I have to think of hundreds of years in the life of Narnia, the witch whom you have brought into this world will come back to Narnia again, but it need not be yet. It is my wish to plant in Narnia a tree that she will not dare to approach. And that tree will protect Narnia from her for many years, so this land shall have a long, bright morning before any clouds come over the sun. You must, you must get me the seed from which that tree is to grow. He's giving Diggory a task. Yes, sir, said Diggory. 
He didn't know how it was to be done, but he felt quite sure now that he would be able to do it because the lion drew a deep breath, stooped its head even lower, and gave him a lion's kiss. And at once Diggory felt that new strength and courage had gone into him. So they climb on the back of Strawberry um, because you'll notice, you see pictures if you turn the page on page 157, Strawberry becomes a winged horse. He becomes a pegasus from Greek mythology. He becomes a winged horse. That's how he's going to go to the, to the western land. So, um, so yeah, they, they climb on board. They climb on board. And um, Diggory and Polly fly away to the western land. Uh, they get to the western land. I want to show you something about prayer uh, on page 163. When they get to the western land, and, and Polly and Diggory are hungry, and, of course, Strawberry, now Fledge, the winged horse, um, who's been transformed by Aslan, uh, Fledge, the winged horse, he's fine because he's eating grass. And there's a lot of grass to eat. He doesn't understand that Diggory and Polly can't enjoy the grass. Uh, notice, here's, here's a lesson about prayer that I hope you've learned by this point in your life. On page 163, Diggory says, Well, I do think someone might have arranged our, our meals, said Diggory. I'm sure Aslan would have if you'd ask him, said Fledge. Fledge is the smart one here. Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly. I have no doubt he would, said the horse, still with his mouth full, but I've a sort of idea he likes to be asked. I hope you've learned that basic Christian concept of prayer. You know, Jesus said, ask and it shall be open to you. The book of James says, you have not because you ask not. There are things that absolutely will not happen unless we pray. Now, God can certainly do them anytime God wants to do them without our benefit of being involved. But there's a mystery to the universe. God in his sovereignty acts a certain way that, sovereign, that God's sovereignty has chosen to act. And part of God's sovereignty and part of God's way of acting, part of the way the universe is spiritually wired, is we get when we ask. You have not because you ask not. Ask and it shall be given to you. Fledge, the flying horse, knew that. I hope you know that. So, you know, prayer does something. Prayer accomplishes something. Prayer changes the one who prays, and prayer changes circumstances. There's a lot that God wants to do. It is the will of God. He will do it when we ask. Because he wants us to be involved in his work in this world. He wants the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve to be involved in his work in the world. And that includes prayer. So God's will is not automatic. If you want God's will in your life, God's will in the life of your children, God's will in the life of this world, you've got to pray. That's why we've been praying for 3,500 years now as Jews and Christians. We get that concept. There are things that will not happen unless we pray. You have not because you ask not. Ask and it shall be given to you. Or as Fledge says, I've sort of idea he likes to be asked. By the way, we do that with our children too, don't we? Sometimes we are, we, it is within our will to give our children something, but sometimes we don't give it till they ask. And then our wills coincide. 
and it happens. So didn't want you to miss that little lesson on prayer there from Fledge. If we really believed that, I think we would pray more. We would pray like we see the saints of the Old Testament, New Testament, and the saints throughout church history praying. But we think things will be what they are whether we pray or not. Well, if that's your view of prayer, yeah, I wouldn't be bothering with prayer either. But the Christian view of prayer is there are things that will not happen unless we pray. Now, I don't understand the totality of that spiritual principle, but I don't understand gravity either. I don't understand electricity, but I'm not going to sit around the dark to figure it out. There are spiritual principles and physical principles in the world that I'm, I'm glad God has revealed them to us. And we just have to get over our ignorance and use them. Anyway, they go to the land, the western land, and you'll notice at the end of chapter 12, Polly sees a tall, dark figure gliding quickly away in the westerly direction after they enter that land. So you know who they're going to find in that land. And that's next week. That's the conclusion. We'll see what happens when they find Jadis in this garden where this tree is planted that can keep people from evil. Um, So let me show you the text I want you just to look at. Take your Bibles. Turn first to the book of Ephesians. Just a couple verses that I think are behind about all of what C.S. Lewis writes, particularly in the Chronicles of Narnia. And again, sometimes even those of us in the Christian faith, we we, we don't do a good job of, of learning the spiritual truths that are revealed to us. So look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 17. Here uh, the apostle is talking about us living as children of light. So here in Ephesians chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 17. And I hope that you will connect all the dots and draw all the parallels with these chapters and really the rest of the magician's nephew. The apostle says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles or the pagans or the heathens do, in the futility of their thinking. That phrase, the futility of their thinking, could be stamped across much of a contemporary society, I think. The futility of their thinking. And then look at verse 18. Here's the principle. They are darkened. This is why we, by nature, think in futile ways. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. This is us in our natural state, Paul says. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, by nature, due to the hardening of their hearts. The more we participate in our spiritual ignorance, the harder our hearts become. Thank Andrew again. He just could not see, could not hear what was going on there at this glorious moment in Narnia. So, yeah, um, that's spiritual reality just like uh, we have not because we ask not. That's the spiritual truth. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the light of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's why sometimes... All the time, actually. That's why trying to explain to a non-Christian what it means to be in Christ is like trying to explain the color green to someone who's been blind all their life. 
that's why in the Christian tradition we're quick to say it's the Holy Spirit who makes Christians. Our job is to take those Christians and turn them into disciples of Christ. But it takes the Holy Spirit to make Christians. Eyes will be opened. Their darkness will become light. Um, that's why John Wesley one time said the work of evangelism is simply to second the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's, there is no evangelism. There is no possibility of people coming to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's why we pray for people. Again, back to what Fledge told, um, told the kids. You know, our God is one who likes to be asked. Um, but that, that's how we do the work of evangelism. Uh, but that's human nature. Again, that's why I baptize your, little, your cute little babies. Um, my whole family, I hope, because of me, knows that Nora and Molly are the best babies ever born, but they're still remarkably sinful creatures. Because they're human beings, they participate in our congenital illness that we call sin, that we pass down person to person. We pass down, and, 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 and Nora and Molly is... Um, you know, probably better than all your grandchildren. Um, but they still need Jesus. They still need Jesus. We come into the world spiritually blind. Okay, one other text. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just to stay with Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this stuff often and frequently, so I don't know how we miss it so much. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just one verse. Verse 14. And again, the church at Corinth was a Greco-Roman church in a Greco-Roman world, and they were trying to evangelize. And I'm sure the Christians in Corinth couldn't understand why these Greco-Roman Corinthians couldn't see plainly the glory of Christ. Well, Paul's trying to help them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, The man without the Spirit, or the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that comes from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, it's like explaining the color green to someone who's been born blind. Um, so it takes the Spirit to open, um, open our eyes and to move us away from our natural ignorance. So, uh, you know, that's why we pray for people. That's why we show them our lives that's why we really don't pester them, because it's not the, the power of the Holy Spirit is not our pestering other people. It takes the Holy Spirit. We pray for them. We show them what it looks like for someone to be a faith, fully devoted, faithful Christ follower. We show them the joy that's ours, and then the Holy Spirit does the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. Um, yeah, you couldn't explain, you couldn't argue Andrew out of his situation. I'm sure he was just as ignorant after he pulled himself up out from the mud, after he'd been planted as a tree. Um, you ever, yeah, I see that and I think dumb as dirt. He, he's, he, you, can't, you can't explain these things to Andrew because of who, who he is, who he's become, and who he has spent years of creating himself to be. His heart is so hardened. So, um, yeah, if you haven't picked it up yet, don't be like Andrew. Don't be like Jadis. Um, and you even see Diggory here being teachable by Aslan. You know, he first off says it's, it's Andrew's fault, Uncle Andrew's fault. Then it says, you know, we just happened to get there by mistake, by accident. Then he finally says, okay, Aslan, I rung the bell. 
Yeah, so you see how Aslan sort of land helped helped help help Diggory get to where he needed to be. That's confession, by the way. He helped Diggory get to where he needed to be. Well, let's say a prayer together, and we will wrap up next week. So I'll look forward to that. Let's pray together. God, for the gift of this time together, we give you thanks. We pray, God, for for those people in our lives who still are are enjoying their spiritual darkness, who are living in their spiritual darkness. May the light of Christ shine upon them. May the light of Christ shine upon them through us. May the light of Christ so shine upon them that their hard hearts will be softened. May they see our lives and see how we have ceased our rebellion See how we have laid down our armaments and how we now follow Christ. May they see how we have ceased our rebellion, how we have repented of our arrogance, how we have repented of our self-sufficiency, and how we joyfully claim all that is ours in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Go in peace, make a friend, someone you haven't talked to.